my work was in an exhibition somewhere and somebody came up to me and recognized one of the aircraft in this image and said, you know, that's the B-27 bomber. Like my father was the lead engineer on that project and heard for those as his baby and it was his life's work. And this person really kind of glowed with this, this nostalgia and this pride. Friends, and welcome to the 37th episode of Pine Copper Lung, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I hope you all are keeping healthy, staying home, and sleeping well. If your quarantine days have been anything like mine, they have been the longest, shortest time of my life. So, there's not much housekeeping today, since it's only been a week since we last talked, but just let me say thank you so, so much to the Pine Copper Lime Patreon supporters. I know these are uncertain times, and it means the world that you are still looking out for your buddies over at PCL. I also want to give a particularly grateful shout out to our sponsor, Mesh Art Gallery in Chicago. Bernard and Jessica have been longtime, big-time PCL supporters, and it really, truly helps keep the lights on here in a very uncertain world. Mesh shows beautiful prints from contemporary printmakers around the world, so I highly suggest you treat yourself and take a look at their catalog. Link in the show notes, naturally. My guest this week is Erica Walker. Erica has been on my list to talk to since back when PCL was just a twinkle in my eye. Erica's lithographs are unmistakable. Drawn from 20th century propaganda imagery and historical documents, she creates a visual mixtape of North America's past glories and hubris. She is an artist who thinks deeply about the why and the how of going about creating her works and speaks eloquently, letting us into her process. In this interview, you're going to hear about how ideas of class, the value of labor, and our corporeal experience all inform the incredible work that she does. The release of this interview was supposed to coincide with the opening of an exhibition at Megaloprint Studio in Canberra, Australia, which paired Erica's lithographs with the work of Katie Mutton and Megalo's archive of historical protest posters. But, well... You've been around the past couple weeks. You can probably figure out what happened. Um, We are hoping, though, to get a digital exhibition up in the next few days, if not the next week. And when that goes through, I will certainly promote that over the Pine Copper Lime Instagram as well as the newsletter. So if you're not already following me on those and you'd like to, head on over to pinecopperlime.com to sign up. One last ask before I hand things over to Erica. If you find yourself with a little extra time this week, (laughs) uh, please take a moment to rate and review PCL on your podcast app of choice, or maybe just share it with another printmaker. It really does make a difference. You all are amazing. There would not be a PCL without you. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Join the party. Over FaceTime. So... Without further ado, sit back, relax, 
and prepare to roll up your sleeves with Erica Walker. Hi, Erica. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. It's Yeah, it's been a good day here and a good evening so far. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, I think I first really became aware of your work in an exhibition at an SGCI. But, you know, your work is so distinctive and striking. That sort of first definitely piqued my interest in you and what you're doing. And then just kind of followed a bit of your work. And of course, we chatted with some mutual friends on Pine Copper Lime, like Jill Graham, and of course, the good folks at Landfall as well. And so, yeah, you've been on my list to talk to as well for quite some time. But for people who don't know you, would you mind asking the would have now started to become my classic introductory questions of who you are and where you are? And what do you do? Right, no problem. Well, first, thank you, Miranda, for for the invite. Um, it's a, an honor to be amongst your roster of <laughs> professionals. It's a great program, a great podcast. I really have enjoyed it over the last couple of years. So, oh, so thank, thank you. you. Thank um, you. I'm, I'm Erica Walker. I'm a visual artist, primarily an image maker. The majority of those images are prints, and I am also an educator. I'm a professor at uh, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, uh, otherwise known as NASCAD. I'm a mother and a spouse, and uh, Nova Scotia still doesn't quite feel like my homeland. Mm. I've been here for eight years almost. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from the U.S. I'm a citizen, born and raised in Wisconsin. So I know that you're, you know, when you say you're an image maker, that's primarily lithography, but you also do some murals, some large scale paintings as well. And I'd love to touch on both. But mm. since we are a printmaking podcast, can you tell me how you came to be a printmaker and maybe specifically even a lithographer? Yeah, I I have a, I don't know, kind of, a, I guess, a quaint story about how I came to printmaking maybe not too dissimilar from a lot of your other guests in the, in kind of happening upon it by chance. Um, I was, I was attending university in central Wisconsin, uh, at the university of Wisconsin, Stevens point. Um, and I, and I didn't go with the intention of studying art. Um, but took a, a drawing class for enrichment and <laughs> my drawing professor was a fellow named Bob Erickson and Bob Erickson is a, an artist that lives, I believe he's in upstate New York now, but he was also the printmaking professor and kind of recruited me to take some, uh, some print classes. So I enrolled in his etching class, having no, you know, no real idea what this printmaking was at some point in that first class, I, kind of remembered these this encyclopedia of art books that my parents had when I was growing up. And in the back of these books, past the color plates, of course, you know, in the in the black mm. and white image section, which was usually very skipped over, there were things called, you know, etchings or lithographs, and to me they looked like drawings. You know, so so as I grew older, I was still kind of attracted to them, but couldn't figure out what is this etching lithography? What is you know, what does relief mean? And yeah, so there was this moment where that kind of clicked. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Okay, cool. And of course there were example prints up on the wall. And I, I think that really did it for me 
more so than all of the accoutrement, all of the the materials and tools and presses and mm. and inks, was seeing what could be done. And I think that is something as an educator that I think about a lot. Is you know sometimes it has nothing to do necessarily with what you know what I'm teaching or how I'm demoing or how excited I am about printmaking, but sometimes those really great moments for a student can just be looking at what we put up on the wall as examples. So yeah, I was very attracted to what was possible in the medium. And of course, Bob was an excellent professor. I, you know, he had a great, great balance of, you know, encouraging areas of encouragement uh, from technical to, to conceptual. And I think what was also happening around that time was I, during the summers, was doing very labor-intensive jobs. I, I worked at a metal foundry uh, for a while in my teenage years and into my 20s and was doing uh, also a lot of landscaping. And so something was happening, which was basically I was learning that I enjoyed labor. I don't think I really framed it that way at the time, but looking back, I can see very clearly, like, yeah, repetitive movement, you know, sort of coordinating and synthesizing my body to work with different tools was mm-hmm. really attractive to me. Which fits in very nicely with the printmaking, the physicality of printmaking. Yeah. And who would have thought, you know, that that my, you know, my summer jobs and then later, you know, some of my full-time jobs would mirror so perfectly um, what I was doing in the printmaking studio. Of course, when I went to graduate school, I realized that, you know, you have to think about everything a hundred times over and, right. and that kind of it was like, oh yeah, you know, what I was doing on a construction site uh, or even in that metal foundry, some of what was, yeah, attractive about that is what I find enjoyable in the print studio. And you know, and, there, and there's flexibility in it too. Like, you know, especially if you're working, you know, with materials like stone or soil or gravel, you know, there's different ways to use different tools to do different desired outcomes, I guess. I think that that's a really lovely thing to point out, that idea of these summer jobs informing what eventually became your art practice and your professional practice. Because so often I think we're told, and I say sort of we as this educated middle-class Americans, that if you're working in, let's say, a foundry or something or landscaping while you're in your undergrad, the narrative is mm-hmm. don't pay too much attention to that. This isn't for you. Like, you know, you're, you're just getting by. Your, your destiny is for the mind. <laughs> You know, and I think the implication right. is, you know, because you're better than that, because, you know, you're going to go be be thinkers. Mm. And that is such a non-constructive way of thinking yeah. about things that we're told to compartmentalize our lives from the mind Absolutely. to the body. Yeah. Right. I remember I was doing a residency in Mexico and I had shared with somebody there that at the time an assistant professor I was you know in academia but prior to that I was looking at a potentially happy career doing highway construction Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they were so amazed with the polarity of those two worlds like wow that doesn't you know that's really rare for that to happen here you know that they were really talking about that shift in my profession as uh, something that was most transcendental, like that people don't move, uh, you know, up the ladder that way. And, and yeah, I think that's a really unfortunate way of, 
of thinking, but you're right. Yeah, we were, we were definitely kind of groomed to, to sort of keep that. Yeah. That's, that's for summer work. That's not for you. That's, you know, especially when it comes to something dirty and gritty yeah. and laborious. I imagine we could get to that, that conversation really interests me that, that paradigm that you're talking about. I feel like I'm, I'm still, you know, 10 years into, into this, I guess I'm thinking about from graduating uh, graduate school and, you know, now I guess it's 2020. It's been 10 years. I've been a, a quote unquote professional for that long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I still am reluctant to leave that world behind. I still long for it and carry a great deal of respect for the people that I worked with and the way that they solved problems and the way that they had a relationship with the work that they did and and how you know if and when that got brought into the rest of their lives you know whether it was a a work ethic or an ethos or just a way of understanding the world and that's kind of where that's especially where the mural work has gone no I guess the print work that I do as well Mm -hmm. I'm frequently looking to to the sort of pastoral setting of of my childhood and upbringing and those you know, those summers and those seasons working, working outside. And there's a lot there. There definitely is. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm sort of resisting asking this question because I just think it could take up the entire rest of our time together. <laughs> but I'm, this, this idea that I'm always curious about is what are the structures in place that lead us to have these beliefs? that labor isn't for you because you're an educated person. You know, you're an artist. You're you're of the mind and the spirit, not of the earthly vessel. That people would be so surprised that you could have be thinking about a career as a construction worker and a career as an artist and that you would mm-hmm. even be considering that the, mm. the life of the physical it's something yeah. that I think we kind of take for granted but I'm always interested in the why like why is that it, despite just ingrained kind of classism and constantly mm-hmm. trying to set ourselves apart and of course the irony mm-hmm. of that is the person who's more likely to be a millionaire on your block in the suburbs is not your art professor it's your plumber right yeah (laughs) but of course you know class isn't just your paycheck yeah it's it was such a great question and I'm I'm curious about it too I I work with some really great contemporary scholars I'd like to like to put that to them I also like to put similar questions to my students Mm -hmm. and I'm often surprised at how much thought they've given to such things much more I'm, I'm so much more likely to run across, you know, a 20-year-old who has actually been chewing on those questions that you're just asking um, so much more so than I did when I was of, in that, that mm. age group. And I, and I think some of it's because those questions are becoming uh, much more urgent for mm. this Generation Z, I yeah. think, that they are now. Yeah, what, what kind, of, kind of life are they looking at? What are their job prospects? What kinds of professions are, are available to them? that are going to help them with, you know, the crippling debt that they're accruing. But um, I, one of the things I try to encourage my students to consider, because they all have so much angst about what are they going to do after graduation, Mm -hmm. is to consider, consider jobs 
you know, outside of food service, please, you know, unless that's something that fills them up, you know, that's the caveat I give them is, well, you know, if you feel like being a barista or working as a, as a waitstaff is something that you feel kind of energized about, absolutely, like, go do that. If you feel like you can still come home and in the evening or the weekends or your days off, if you can still kind of manage some creative output, absolutely do that work. But I find that so many of them are just drained after doing those kinds of uh, of jobs that they don't have any, any room left to give to creative work. So like, oh, think about things like being a firefighter. They're often have rotating 24 hour schedules. You know, you could be working you know, two shifts on for two full days and then three days off and then two days on and then three days off. Like that supports studio practice potentially. And then you're learning about this whole other sector of the world or what about working on an oil rig? Like what fuel for your creative practice that could be? Mm-hmm. You know, don't discount trades either. There could be a really great way to find some harmony in your lifestyle by working physically and learning about this other sector that we've, like you're saying, so often thought is not, not for us. And, and, you know, now that I have a a child too, I think about, you know, what am I going to encourage that child to do? There's, there's almost seems something really practical and healthy about, about a field of work that isn't so, so ball busting, I guess, Mm -hmm. as, it's what I've entered into. Yeah. Gosh, there's just like, there's so much in there. Cause what, yeah, one of the things that I think about is how sometimes when Tim and I are feeling particularly disillusioned with the world of the mm-hmm. arts, one of the things that he'll say is, fuck, if I wanted to go support the arts, I'm going to go be a plumber and I'm going to go buy art from contemporary <laughs> artists and maybe you know set up a foundation because being another cog in a system that is reliant upon people who will work very hard for not much money because we should feel privileged Mm -hmm. to be working in it at all is just being complacent with the problem yes that's another interesting um kind of sad quandary i find myself in sometimes is you know, as as funding for the arts, you know, dwindles in either the U.S. or Canada, and I do find myself kind of operating in in both places in this sort of awkward in between way. But anyways, you know, as some of that support may dwindle, what are we reliant on to sort of keep that going? And and capitalism is a real drag that way. <laughs> you know, if, if and a lot of people who make prints especially find themselves, you know, floating around in precarious work in academia. There's fewer and fewer tenure track jobs. Um, and even within those tenure track jobs, the capacity for an institution to support that person, you know, as a working artist who's exhibiting and making, who needs to ship and needs to get materials out there and needs to you know, have that support to keep it going and much. And let's talk about time as a resource too. You know, these people are often so beleaguered with mm-hmm. different responsibilities that broach so far outside of their own research and creative practice and the teaching that it's hard to find time to make. But anyway, as that reality sort of looms over so many of us, yeah, what is keeping us afloat? If it's the commercial world and if it's selling in galleries, 
then we need to, as you know, like we need to keep courting people who are collect- like this plumber, like these mm-hmm. plumbers. Printmaking has more in store for them than, you know, enormous $30,000 canvases. Yes. I think that's where we're missing our audience sometimes. You're so, so speaking my language. It's something that I think about so often that is tied mm. into the over-intellectualization of art and the over-theoreticalization of art that creates this sense in that same way how we may be told and we may carry a bias within us that physical mm. labor is not for me. Having mm. been someone who's sort of a public interface with the arts for 10 or so Mm -hmm. years now I get that the other way where you'll Mm -hmm. see people who say oh this isn't for me this isn't my space this isn't uh, this isn't how I'm supposed to spend my money and it's a huge shame because one of Mm -hmm. the things I would tell people is you don't need to know anything about art you just need to know if you Mm -hmm. like something or not that is knowing about art absolutely oh I want to share similar stories which I think really drive my studio practice and what I'm still choosing to make images about there were a couple instances either you know somewhere around 2010 and beyond where my work was you know in an exhibition somewhere and I was present at the at the reception and somebody came up to me and recognized one of the aircraft in Hmm. this image and said, you know, that's the B-27 bomber. Like my father was the lead engineer on that project and shared for those as his baby. And it was his life's work. And this person really kind of glowed with this, this nostalgia and this pride about their father. And there were a couple other really similar occurrences where it was, you know, somebody, a student's parent who was a farmer um, was really kind of their eyes lit up about some of the tractors I had been using in my work. I, I, I realized I really wanted to talk to that person and I and I really valued their input about the work and how they read it. And I really started realizing, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm often missing my target audience if my work you know, is only in these types of galleries or if I'm kind of sequestered in academia too much and that... Yeah, that's that's led to a couple, you know, different potential roads for me that I really like to keep hammering away at. And one is looking for kind of alternative venues for my work, different mm-hmm. types of museums, not necessarily art museums, but um, different, you know, military museums or murals on barns. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole other big topic that, you know, might take me away from print conversation, but murals are definitely, you know, the other democratic medium, perhaps right. much more so than right. Yeah. But in a in a nutshell, the desire to make murals in rural areas is, you know, getting at at something very similar. I wanted to bring my work to to the people that I'm interested in and in understanding and reconnecting with. I grew up in a very rural area and my father grew up farming and was our local agriculture teacher and I feel like what happens in rural areas is really important mm-hmm. and those are my people I, I think I have a responsibility to continue to engage with them I'm not in some elevated position above them I don't see that at all I think we have a lot to learn from from one another I feel like I always do this in interviews where I realize I get so far into it and I'm so familiar with what your work looks like maybe before we kind of 
dive into my next question. If you wanted to speak to the actual content of it, because I think it'll help put larger conversations in a good perspective. Oh, sure. I, th- I think that the current artist talk that I give when I'm a visiting speaker somewhere is, it sounds very, it's a bit dry and, and maybe academic, but I'm interested in, through the images that I make, through invoking, through emulation, the visual, textual, and ideological language of 20th century Western propaganda. Uh, and I do that in service of exploring generative and destructive birthrights and questioning the difficulty and complexity of honoring ideas of heritage, patriotism, progress. Yeah, that's sort of my my best synopsis of what it is that I do. So a lot of my work, a lot of print work, yeah, looks like European or American propaganda posters. And that actually fits in perfectly with where I wanted to talk next, because one of the things that I really admire about your work is that it lives in this in-between space, where it captures these two opposing emotional realities of being proud of the American roots of the worker and the fighter, but also Mm -hmm. understanding that problematic side of blind Mm -hmm. nostalgia. And you don't gloss over these huge issues of colonialism and nationalism that, of course, Mm -hmm. are the other side of that coin that's that classic image of a strong white man with blonde hair standing in front of a tractor that he built that he's conquering this land and make bending it to his will and making it produce food for his family and this kind of thing and since it's I find that really present in your work and and handled in this great way that it feels kind of agendaless and like you're not necessarily trying to solve it you're just presenting it in its complexity as a question for the viewer to answer. And I'm wondering if it's something that you yourself have done a bit of sort of soul searching to reconcile, particularly with your farming Wisconsin background. Yeah, I think you very succinctly just underlined the the driving question in my studio practice or the, the driving kind of narrative And that work, this work, I guess, because I I think I'm still doing it, was really driven from that tension and that conflict of, like you said, sort of honoring where I come from or or finding that there's a lot to honor or be proud of. I, I have a very kind of very white bread, middle class heritage, um, and a lot of the story of how uh, my family came to be where they are um, and came to find themselves in professions that they found themselves in is is a really lovely story that's easy to be proud of. But you know, also as you were saying, that is is just couched in so many problematic narratives and realities that had to occur in order for me to have that pastoral, beautiful, heritage-rich, patriotic upbringing. And yeah, so so I, I found that was really hard to wrestle with. I didn't really know what to do with that. And so I started making this work. And I think that's a really important thing that I try, I try to communicate to my students and, and to remind myself of regularly, too, is I don't, as an artist, I don't think it's always appropriate to, you know, to be really knowledgeable and, and wise about a worldview and then to just sort of take that worldview and 
put it directly into your art. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm striving to do when I make. I'm, I'm interested in bringing problems and questions. And the way that I make work is an attempt to, to spend some time with those questions and to develop an intimate understanding of how, how did I come to be this way? Who else has been steeped in this world? What are the implications of that? What does this look like? Um, what's the rhetoric that has driven this? And I began, especially the print work, the lithographs that look like propaganda posters, I began that work with this question, you know, can I, can I honor and criticize at the same time? Is there something honorable, particularly about war making? And where is that? Mm-hmm. Where is that? honor where is is there anything to be proud of in that history and I feel like I'm on the cusp of the answer to that for myself not for anyone else necessarily uh, though I'd love it if people would look at my work and go there but yeah. let's not get away anyway I to get back to more of the the root of some of your question I think that that tension is a really cool place to make work from no matter what the tension is like the tension between binaries or or even more than two opposing sides of a of a issue you know if a, if a maker has things that they feel conflicted about i think that's a really rich place to make work from and there i remain you know conflicted <laughs> and a little used and and that's that's okay because it's producing um work that i'm still excited about yeah, and I think it's what makes your work so intriguing, among other things, when the fact that it's, they're just beautiful and you're an incredible draftsperson and, you know, it has these formal elements that, of course, sort of draw me in very strongly. But it's so much more interesting to see something that's saying, how about this, as opposed to yeah. this is it. Yes. And and that, that maybe makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable when I look at it, because I don't know how I feel. I think that that's really, really a nice place to be. Oh, I'm glad you think so, because I don't, I, I, I think that that's a hard place for people to be. I think that when people that don't have the kind of training that we have encounter something that doesn't have the kind of narrative they may expect, or is hard to find meaning in, there's this assumption you know, perhaps that, you know, Joe Plummer that we were talking about assumes that that he doesn't have the appropriate mm. level of education or training. And that that really bones me out. And that was something that I encounter again, you know, sometimes if I'm in a gallery space and I'm showing in a place where people who do have, you know, more blue collar backgrounds are actually attending. Those are sometimes the questions I get like, well, you know, I feel really dumb asking this, but what does this mean? It happened a lot while I was on a teeny boom, you know, making this mural. People would drive by and they'd stop and they'd say, I'm really excited about it. It's it's really beautiful. It's coming along nicely. But now that you have the text up there, I'm wondering, like, what? I don't get it. What does it mean? Mm. And I was on site. It was a really great opportunity to explain, like, oh, yeah, that's a common question. And let me like tell you, as a contemporary artist, we're not, uh, a lot of us at least, aren't <laughs> trying to present you with something that has one meaning that you're supposed to understand or that if you spend enough time looking at it the right way that you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. There's no it. These are some of the questions I wrestle with, and I'll tell them a little bit about why this particular tractor or why this piece of technology, where the text comes from. And this is maybe the kind of question I bring to it, but for you, it could be something totally different. And 
that really opened people up to kind of trying it out on their own and making meaning. And I think that I want that to happen more. And that is, you know, another big, huge topic. Yeah, for round two. And something that I found in my my time, again, being this kind of public interface of like an art communicator is if we can be so simplistic to talk about America and Mm. really more specifically sort of white America in this way of there's a binary of the intelligentsia and the blue collar Mm. worker and that people who might be from a more labor side of things might feel Mm -hmm. like they're being attacked a bit because you know this narrative that we're kind of fed is if you're a laborer you know you're someone Mm -hmm. who doesn't like me because Mm -hmm. I'm smart and I'm queer and you hate both those things you know that kind Mm -hmm. of thing Mm -hmm. and then vice versa where it's like if you're an art professor you just think I'm a dumbass Mm -hmm. hick and you're making fun Mm -hmm. of me and you know of course like the big overarching irony is that that's that kind of divide the masses Mm -hmm. so they bicker amongst each other and don't pay attention to the structural systems that are in place that are actually making our lives shit (laughs) is classic of course um so that brings me back to this idea of i could see maybe in some of your work perhaps when you do get a little bit critical i'm wondering if you ever get any kind of reactionary reception Mm. from it where it's what are you saying war is bad are you saying my grandfather died for nothing which is understandable as you said particularly when when we are fed a us versus Mm -hmm. them narrative right Right. Yeah, I think that I spend maybe a bit of my energy making sure that when I show up somewhere or when I am being recorded Uh (laughs) or being written about or if I'm doing the writing or if I'm, you know, if, if my work or information about my work is going into the public, um, or if I'm there in public with my work, I try to stay accessible. Is that mm-hmm. what I want to say? Mm-hmm. I am not, yeah, I've never really felt a part of the intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, very much am who I was growing up in a lot of ways. And, you know, I may I may be sure to present myself and introduce myself in a way that is not... Yeah, not off-putting. I I cuss a lot, and I don't put that <laughs> on. I just make sure that I'm not censoring myself. Or, you know, if a little bit of my Wisconsin accent comes out, that's all right. If our conversation starts off by talking about, you know, different kinds of front-end loaders, that's good. Like, I, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not pasting it on or or pretending I'm something I'm not. Um, just sort of getting back into and remembering that, yeah, that I'm a little bit country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of course, all of, so much of the, the binary opposition that we have right now, so much of this polarity in the U.S. especially, and I know it's, it's happening everywhere. I'd like to see that start to change, and that's a big, wicked problem. But one of the things I think I can do on my end is you know, to continue to make work and to try to engage with that audience. I I mentioned earlier the, you know, the folks from places like Hartford, Wisconsin, where I grew up, who are working in manufacturing 
fishing and farming and don't think that they can relate to me. They can, and I can relate to them. And we sh we ought to share some of the same concerns. Maybe we don't, but if I can, you know, if I can bring my work to them, maybe out of 50 people I talk to, I might only make an impression on one, or at least not even make an impression, but give them a question to chew on. And maybe that question won't surface for a couple more years but sometimes that's as lofty as my goals are as an artist yeah well and I think it is important work and that there's a certain bravery in an image making where you're comfortable with letting an ambiguity hang as well and that again as we were sort of saying makes for quite interesting work and mm -hmm. maybe even more accessible in the sense mm. that when there is that ambiguity, people from many different backgrounds can bring their own story mm -hmm. to it a bit easier. And there could be mm. less of a, this isn't for me, because yeah. that ambiguity lets that audience be a little bit broader. I, I hope that yeah, in that ambiguity, people can maybe locate themselves or if someone thinks like, oh, maybe I'm part of the problem or maybe I'm part of the solution, maybe there's room for both thoughts to occur, feelings, states of mind simultaneously. And mm -hmm. that's something I think we need to do a better job of as, as humans to hold opposing truths, you know, to not pick a camp, not pick a side, but kind yeah. of just be uncomfortable not knowing the answers and not knowing what's right. That's important. One other little nugget that occurred to me there was a visiting artist who did a studio visit with me when I was in graduate school. And it's a person whose work I, I very much admire and whose career is, is one I still look up to. And this person told me, you need to figure out what you're saying. I don't know if this person really believed in their whole heart that I needed to find, you know, what it was I wanted to say socially, politically, etc. But I really was kind of upset by that and had to chew on it for a little bit. And, you know, maybe a year or so later, I was like, no. No, I don't actually. Yeah. That's that this work is about is is trying to explore that and trying to reveal for viewers the complexity of, of some of these topics that I'm playing around with. One of the other things I really wanted to ask you about, which ties in nicely with this, when you add text to your work, it never feels like it's suddenly become didactic or heavy handed. And mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you speak a bit to that process of finding the text and how you go about incorporating it in a way that it can still leave questions hanging at the same time that it's giving you more information. That's, I'm glad you asked that. It's a fun one to, to think about and talk about. It's, and it's always evolving for me too. The text is such a fun and often frustrating, but really kind of a wild card part of my work that I still don't fully know hard how to articulate why some work so well and why mm. others or why why I choose to use the bits and pieces that I do. So what I what I do often when I begin a piece of work, sometimes I'll start a piece of work inspired by the story of a particular invention or machine or a conflict. Sometimes a piece will be inspired actually by a piece of text. And, you know, in that case, I know, like, okay, I'm going to use text from these treaties or this treaty um, or this law, and that's going to be the basis of my work. And then I kind of move out from there. But sometimes I, you know, like I said, I have an image, a piece of technology or a figure from antiquity or from popular culture. 
and I have to find the text. Uh, at the beginning, I, I didn't. So when I started this work in like 2009, when I started working with image and text, I didn't have, you know, a sort of library of go-tos. Um, and I'm always expanding that library currently. But I started off by looking at existing propaganda posters, and then that sort of expanded into historical speeches. So Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address as a president uh, to the nation still really piques my interest. It was mm. very pointed. And a lot, actually a lot of outgoing policymakers, particularly presidents, if they're giving an address, it is often so much more, almost refreshingly honest than any of their campaign speeches. They often involve warnings about where we're kind of going wrong, uh, what some of the risks are that are perhaps coming with the next candidate, the next president. Some of the text comes from the 9-11 commission report or recruitment language used by the Canadian Armed Forces or the American Armed Forces, recruitment language you know, from, say, the 19th century, and then recruitment language from, you know, the 21st century. And sometimes it's coming from the Constitution of the United States. Sometimes it's coming from the Montreal Annexation Manifesto. But I recently read a very large chunk of the Pentagon Papers, Vietnam War, that was rough. What I'm doing is I'm reading through these documents, and I'm finding these chunks of text that I, I don't know how to tell you why they're right or what it is about them. That it, I, I mean, it, clearly their ambiguity is important to me. I think maybe I read them and I see, oh, this could be read this way or understood this way or this this way. I bet you that's what I'm, what I'm doing. I'm locating things that sound just poetic or just you know, just rhetorical enough that they have that spice to them, but that they can also be led in multiple ways. I think that must be what I'm doing. And then I isolate those, I put them in a file, and then often, sometimes I'll have too many, I'll have 20 <laughs> phrases for one piece. And so I actually, instead of looking at them on my computer, I found that if I print them out and cut them up into little thingies and I can play around with them like as objects, that somehow gets me to the right place. And then what I've taken to doing lately, too, is having a lot of fun with finding something contemporary and then finding something historic and kind of mashing them together, which to me is, even though a viewer will never know that those are two different eras of, of rhetoric being smashed together, you know, I know it and I know that that it's kind of proves my point that political rhetoric especially has not changed very much. You know, some of some of the devices may be different, some of the tonality is different, but the basic propagandistic function of those words and often those images is still trying to do the same thing to us. It's really fun. I I it's kind of nerdy. It's also my permission slip or my I don't know how, how to phrase it, but I I feel like I missed a lot of U.S. history, world history, and I'm trying to kind of make up for lost time with Canadian history and 
this is my sort of window to that. Um, when I make work, I do my best to be as knowledgeable and intimately aware of, you know, of the stories and the, the people and the technology that's being used. So each piece that I make, there's often, you know, quite a bit of research behind it. Yeah, the one that I was particularly thinking of is a mural that you've done, mm. I think, on the side of a, a barn or side of a, a rural building. I feel like it's important to get the phrasing just right, but it's something about like, be industrious that you may live. That particular Mm -hmm. one struck me because Mm -hmm. it feels Mm -hmm. sinister at the same time as it feels hopeful. I'm, I'm really pleased about that little chunk of text. So sometimes when I'm sifting through all of these different documents and phrases that, that I want to pull from for a piece, I'm often left with like 20 or in some cases even more different phrases that um, have to go in one image. And that create, you know, really creates a problem for me. I hate, I hate winnowing things down. But that one, that's all I had, that mm. little chunk of text. I did weeks of digging into archives from Kings County, Nova Scotia. Kings County in Nova Scotia is is sort of the agricultural epicenter of the province. There's a lot of a lot of really rich soil and a really hospitable climate for growing food. So mm. um, all the farms are there. And that piece, that mural that you're referring to is there as well. And after all this digging, I had narrowed down a few things. There were a few local authors that I was pulling from, but it was really in this, I almost missed it. It was a a transcript of a speech being given by the president of the Agricultural Society back in, I think, mid-19th century. It was quite old. And he was talking about the motto of the Agricultural Society in its early days was be industrious that you may live. And so that would have, in those early days, I think would have been even earlier in the 19th century as the New England planters sort of pushed out all the French Acadian farmers. Anyway, be so be industrious that you may live. I have some of the same questions that you do. Like as a motto for an agricultural society, what what was that espousing? Like what first of all, like let's go back to that era only for that only in that realm, but mm-hmm. let's go back to that when when people were a bit more philosophical and poetic. Yeah. Um, in their cultural societies where I think that one really, really makes you think. In that era, I suppose, though, it was probably so that our communities may have a chance of making it through the winter. We need right. to be industrious. But but farmers, growers, uh, the ag industry still need to do this. Um, and consumers need to get on board, too. So uh, soil conservation, for, for one, uh, climate change, and soil conservation really, you know, obviously are going hand in hand. Really, really important issues that affect, you know, how we feed ourselves and hence our survival. We need to figure out ways of doing farming a little bit differently so that we can continue to have, yeah, viable food that we yeah. eat, to put it in a really nutshell you know it's it's also I've heard people in the area um, where I made this mural talk of it as is kind of hopeful and in terms that you were mentioning earlier almost paying homage to the farmers in in that area and elsewhere who through their hard work and industriousness are providing us with what we need 
and who are, you know, who, I guess whose very uh, resilience is, is something to be, to be looked at with admiration mm-hmm. and respect. I want to maybe pivot a little bit away mm-hmm. from the intellectual world to talk a little bit more about actual physical labor and physical making. Because something that I think is interesting about your practice and what you've been working on recently in this portfolio with NASCAD is that Mm -hmm. you have a background in fine art lithography. And yet for this portfolio, you worked with a master printer, our friend Jill Graham. And I think often we think about, oh, it's a master printer. They're working with someone who's not, they're not a printmaker, so they need you know, they need someone to hold their hand through this. And even though you make absolutely stunning lithographs, you've spoken to the mm-hmm. fact that when you worked with Jill, she was able to show you some things that you'd wanted to do, but didn't have mm-hmm. the, the skill set of at the time. And mm-hmm. so you were trained in that fine art in UT Knoxville. Jill is mm-hmm. a Tamron trained printer. And mm-hmm. I think I'd be just mm-hmm. kind of curious to hear you talk to what should a young lithographer do? How do they know if they want to go oh. get that technical training or the fine art training and your experience um, kind of dipping a toe in both both sides of that world? So everything that you touched on is so interesting to me. Yeah, the, the project with Jill was wild. And, and at, you know, at the same time, I was also working on a piece that I finished with Jack Lemon uh, and Steve Campbell down at Landfall. And, you know, I had, I had, in a few circumstances, you know, worked with people who printed my work before, but not really in that capacity where these were, you know, master printers who had it handled like 100%, mm. not only just had it, but had the, the abilities, these really kind of, I think they're very mystical abilities, <laughs> you know, to, to dream big and let them take care of the technical side of things. What a, what a really wacky and sometimes awkward experience as somebody who makes prints themselves. You know, there's a reason it's, it's often not done that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that my technical knowledge could really get in the way. I did my best in both cases with Jill Graham um, and hopefully with Jack and Steve to sort of get out of the way and pretend I didn't know anything. That was challenging, especially with Jill, because, uh, we, you know, we work in the same institution. Yeah. But I, I don't think of myself as a lithographer. Mm. That feels important to say because I don't have no anywhere near the kind of, of in-depth technical knowledge that Jill or Jack Lemon or Steve Campbell would have. Any, you know, anyone who's Tamarin training or you know, whose training comes from years of experience. I just don't have that. And, I, and I'm still a bit awkward with lithography. You know, I do a lot of big colorful lithos and people are surprised when I say that, that I really kind of suck at litho. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I'm making a suspicious face on the other end of the microphone. And we're like, you don't know litho? Uh-huh. Really? <laughs> no, if you, if you put one of my prints down and, you know, and you and Jill are standing over a table looking at it and, and I wasn't there and you said, Jill, tell me what's wrong with this print. She would, I'm sure have a field day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, some of the maybe mistakes I make or missteps I make are things that maybe only another lithographer would know. But, you know, the more I work alongside someone like Jill or, or my other colleague, Mark Bovey, the more I realize I don't know. So I kind of know enough to get the job done. 
and I picked up little pieces as I go. So, you know, through working alongside Jill Graham um, or Mark Bovey, and certainly in graduate school with Bovey Lyons, you know, I picked up a lot of great tidbits here and there um, just to help me kind of get by or to slowly branch out into maybe more adventurous technical problems within lithography. But yeah, I just feel like there's just still so much to learn. And so I have a long ways to go. There's been so many things that I have wanted to try in lithography. And I think this this touches on the, the last part of your question, which is, you know, what kind of advice would I give? I think about my my journey thus far in making images and making prints, I was in an undergraduate environment where uh, I think a lot of my students end up, which is where I'm just understanding printmaking enough by the time I'm about to graduate that I can make some half decent images. Uh You know, and then there is, you know, for me, graduate school a number of years later, it was challenging to fit in technical training in that you know, three, and I had a three-year program at the University mm. of Tennessee. Not, I, I still found it difficult to hone things to the degree I wanted to. So, I mean, I guess that's a, a, a word of maybe warning or at least a truism for those who are attempting to to really hone technical skills and study under a, a master so that they may become a proficient etcher or lithographer, like maybe, you may have to really protect that and yeah. enrich, like encourage that between the relationship that you have with your faculty, if that's even possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's really one's aim, I would say, you know, to to see if you can work alongside a master printer or go to a place like Tamarind and get that training, maybe even prior to graduate school or after graduate school, or, you know, graduate school is also not a necessity. Right. So, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm still learning. It sounds like such a trite truism, <laughs> but especially when it comes to litho. Yeah. So the piece that I did with Jill, it was subtle textural shifts. You know, I had been looking at a lot of World War One propaganda posters, and there was some really beautiful and sometimes I think unintentional textures that were showing up in background flats. I really wanted, I wanted to do that in a way that was sort of as sensual and rich as what I was looking at. And that was just something that I just didn't go there on my own. I think of myself as a bit of a, like, you know, a machine when it comes to lifting. Hmm. Like, don't try anything fancy, just get in there and get the job done. And so working with, with her was a real treat. And it's something that's hard to see in a digital image of that piece. But if you look closely, there's just some really beautiful stuff going on in the background flat. I think that speaks to something that we were talking about just a little bit before we started recording, just about that kind of nature of graduate school and how, generally speaking, you're not going to get a huge focus on the technical side of making. Just because you do have a finite amount of time and the pressures to do so much more are are there, you know, to to write the papers and, and... and do all of these other things. But I do like what you were saying that mm-hmm. if that's something that's important to you, it's not necessarily that you couldn't get it, but you're good. It's not yeah. going to just come to you. You're going to have to right. make sure that that is right. something that you chase. And I think that's something I still feel, you know, fight is a strange word to 
to choose, I guess, but I still feel like I do that. I, I fight hard for the time. In, in a way, it's very time consuming. Like the way that I draw can be really arduous and it takes a long time. And this ties back to what we were talking about with physical labor as well. I think that there's a lot of value in laboring in the material world and whether that's physically drawing on a film or on a stone or or making marks on an etching plate or it's you know moving a lot of soil and moving rocks into place like i think there's something spiritual and or emotionally psychologically important about engaging in the physical world and engaging your body and so yeah so I fight for that I fight for the time and I had to I think I missed you know some other opportunities to hone other things in graduate mm. school and I think currently because I'm fighting for that I'm, I miss out on other things but that's you know that's just the mathematics of life I suppose yeah. but I find it's, it's worth fighting for so graduate school I think can be also what what you bring to the table and it helps to really have a you know have goals in mind maybe specific goals um, and be willing to reevaluate those every couple of weeks <laughs> Well, beautiful. Well, I think that that's a really lovely place to wrap up. Where can people know more about you, follow your work, maybe even purchase your work if you've got representation? Where can they do that? Uh, well, you can uh, check out my website. Um, there's a couple links on the website to other people and places that are relevant to my practice. That's ericawalker.com, Erica with a C and a K. Or you can follow me on Instagram, Erica Louise Walker. Beautiful. I'll put links to all of that. Thank you so much for your time and attention and I'm really looking forward to sharing this and I do hope we can come on again because I feel like there's so much more we could dive into. Thanks for having me on, Miranda. It was It's just really great to be included in your roster of awesome print professionals. Thank you again and have a good night. Yeah, have a good morning, almost afternoon, I suppose. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Martin Mazzora. We'll talk about Cannonball Press and their famous $20 no-holler business model, the love of letterpress, and keeping company with wild turkeys. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.